Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today, Kellen and I are going to be talking to Terry LePage. She's a master of divinity, has a PhD, and wrote a book called Eye of the Storm, Facing Climate and Social Chaos with Calm and Courage. The book is meant to help people find stories, inner resources, and practical tools for living with compassion, courage, and even joy in the face of collapse. It comes from her small group work with collapse-aware people in the International Deep Adaptation Forum. She's worked as a research chemist, transitional minister, and hospice chaplain. She lives in Southern California and facilitates nonviolent communication practice groups, grief circles, and community circles, both locally and for the International Deep Adaptation Forum. We are excited to talk to Terry today, uh, get to learn about her and her book, which, by the way, she would like you to have access to. We have put a link in the description. And while, of course, she would love if you could support and buy the book, she does also give access to the book through PDF and audio versions, which are both free. With that, we'll start the interview. All right, Terry LePage, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So we thought maybe we'd start um, with a simple question. If you could just tell us a little bit about what brought you to Collapse Awareness. Uh, easy answer. Uh, on my Facebook feed, I have uh, somebody who was ahead of the curve um, who posted Jem Bendel's paper, Deep Adaptation, shortly after it was uh, sort of published in August of 2018. Um, this story is actually in the book. I was reading it in a coffee house in San Luis Obispo. And, you know, 
my my chair turned upside down a couple times and my life got reoriented how did it impact you to uh to read that article based on your the knowledge you already had about where we were at and then what did that what doors did that open for you so it it took it from the realm of news to something visceral and I, I've always thought of myself as kind of a far seer. You know, I notice what other people don't. I see trends. And I knew that things were going to get bad. I just, it was still kind of out there later sometime. And Jim pointed out, no, it's it's already unfolding. And that realization just changed the priorities of my life. I I sat with it for a long time, not knowing how to be with that information. And then I came out of it uh, being a little different than before and doing different things. Did it send you down a, a loophole of other research um, or did you kind of take that and say, this is all I really need to know. Um, what do I do with this now? Or, or did you kind of spiral? Uh, I would, I would say some introspection and, and some, um, at first reading and then conversation about, um, it took a while, uh, about a year into it, I, I joined the deep adaptation forum and got active. There was a Facebook group, which pretends to be conversation and is helpful that way, but there's nothing like real people. Absolutely. And so what about prior to uh, to reading the paper? You, you said that you kind of had an idea. You knew more or less that things were a problem, but just maybe not the urgency of it. How? What was that like growing up? How, um, how did the idea of climate change or other collapse um, aspects, how did those play into your life? What part did they play in, in growing up? I, I would say not very much. Um, I, I am trained as a research chemist. I have a PhD in chemistry, so I can read the data and understand it to a, a, a greater extent, I think, than most people. And um, I think one of, one of the things that, I, that allowed me more aware, awareness is that I understand how predictions are done. You, you take a line and you extrapolate but do you use a straight, do you fit it to a straight line? What do you do? Um, and, and so I knew that there would be nonlinearities, that there would be tipping points. And I really understood what that meant. And I also knew that we didn't know when that was going to happen until they happen. Well, guess what? They're happening. <laughs> yeah, we're always amazed at how much faster things happen than most people expect. Um, but I'm curious, a lot of people have become collapse aware. Uh, not a lot of people go and write uh, an incredible book like the one that you wrote. So what led you to actually write the book that you wrote? Yeah, okay, now we're now we're getting to the interesting part. Um, so I was serving as a Christian minister because I have the luxury of accepting a low or non-existent salary. And um, although my husband always tried to get me a tele to be a televangelist, it just never really was going to work. That's <laughs> um, running joke in our family. <laughs> um, so, so I have the luxury to reflect on our human condition and speak to it so that people have 
tools, psychological tools, spiritual tools, emotional tools to deal with life. Um, and it, it's reductionist to call religion a tool for dealing with life, but it's not wrong. So, so that's what I knew how to do. I knew how to serve and I knew how to tell stories and frame reality to help people deal with life. And so I spent a lot of time in thought and reflection and conversation. How would I do that for this new reality that we're facing? Um, and then I started actually doing that by offering uh, something I called grief, gratitude, and courage, like half-day workshop. And then we kind of pared it down to a 90-minute, two-hour grief circle. And I found out actually that when you get people who are who are hurting enough to need to open their hearts, the format doesn't matter that much. But a small group format in which people can be honest with each other about what they're facing and how they're dealing with it is so incredibly healing and empowering. So I've, you know, I've got 10 different formats up my sleeve. The format almost doesn't matter. It's, um, you know, some people prefer one, some is a better marketing spin, but the basic idea is, is get people together, get real, and they get strength and reassurance by knowing they're not alone, that somebody has been looking this shit in the face for a while now and is still telling the tale and is, in fact, still having fun in their lives, despite that there are horrors all around. And, and those are real, too. So I, I did I've I've done these groups for, I'm sure, over a thousand people who specifically almost all of them were in the deep adaptation forum which is a group that kind of has it plastered on the front of the homepage, like things are going to collapse we don't need to get specific because the issues are the same whatever you think the specifics are come in and figure out how to deal with that reality with us the tagline of the deep adaptation forum the purpose statement is enabling and embodying loving responses to our predicament. So we get people who are service oriented, which is wonderful. And we get people who are just freaking out. So I sat with those people and I listened to those people. I didn't teach them much. I just made spaces where they could regulate their nervous systems, share their pain, take support from their fellow sufferers and think about now, how do I live? And that's, then I'm like, I wish I could do this for more people. So that's why I wrote a book. I love that. And one thing that you've mentioned a couple of times here, you've, you've talked about things like a loving response, and you've talked about gratitude, and you've talked about compassion. Usually, what we've noticed is when people become collapse aware, there's a lot of anger. Uh, there's a lot of kind of apathy towards any sort of a positive response. <laughs> So how do you how do you shift somebody's mind from being in a place of just anger about the situation, anger about the system, anger about all of the, you know, government entities or corporations or whoever that they feel is responsible or who hasn't taken appropriate actions? How do you shift from such a negative mindset to something more positive? Wow, what a great question. I've I've kind of um, been fortunate that in the circles I travel. 
people are often already committed to service. And, you know, part of service is being realistic about like the world sucks. That's why we need to serve. <laughs> and, and it's funny because there are so many different layers to human suffering and human caused suffering that if you've been deeply exposed to one layer, um, it's not too hard for the credits to transfer. So if you've sat with watching people die and you know that people die, like the fact that we're all gonna die, we always were all gonna die. I don't need to get angry about that. But, it, but if it's your first immersion into major human suffering, yeah, the uh, normal response is to be really pissed off and to say, you know, I was sold a bill of goods. But those of us who've, you know, worked with homeless people, people who are in the crimmigration system, um, work at a food shelf and watch people be grateful for the grossest food, um, you, you know, it, it opens your heart. So tell us a little bit more about the book. Kellen and I both uh, read it and loved it. And we've had some discussions between us about your book. And and I want as many people as can um, to be able to read it and and gain the sort of insight that I felt like I gained from it. Um, I would love to hear, I guess, from you, Terry, a, a brief synopsis of the book, of the format of the book, um, what people can expect upon um, upon reading it. Hey, I don't know how brief I can be, but I'll try. <laughs> no need um, to be brief. <laughs> so uh, it starts out with a disclaimer for which I thank uh, Vanessa Andreotti and her book, Hospicing Maternity. Read this first. Is this book for you? And I've been in conversation with two people who gave me a lot of pushback. And I said, did you read the preface, the introduction? And they said, yeah. And I knew that it wasn't for me. And I read it anyways. So. <laughs> And the people I got pushback for are people who think that there are tech fixes for for our predicament, right? Um, or or lobbying fixes or fixes. You sort of and, have and to really to believe in collapse. You have to know that it's happening in order to to read and understand where your book is coming from. If if you're going to fight against it, you're probably not going to get out of your book what what you intend for people to get out of it. Surprisingly, that that is not true. Um, I had several close friends who were not, I mean, they knew what I did, but they didn't buy into it. And, and they were able to, to take from the book a lot, um, even if they're still not convinced of the premise that the book is meant to address. There's, there's so many other hard things in the world and so many other reasons to engage the way people are engaging in response, I, I, I've been pleasantly surprised. If you can get them to read it, that's the trick. Yeah, that's lovely. That's great. <laughs> so, so after that preface is um, the first three chapters are about stories and the power of stories. And, and, and I think that's really one of the things that made me want to write the book is, is to tell my own particular stories to frame collapse. We always tell ourselves stories culture is is a series of stories that and and the story is so somebody else's founding stories or beliefs are myths our founding stories and beliefs are reality 
right? Totally. Like, until they're not, until they no longer fit. And, and when somebody's cultural stories fail them, um, they get angry, they get despairing, they get apathetic, um, and they're not able to be of service and they, are, they may destroy their own health as well. So changing the story when your old story isn't working is super, super important. And I don't think we know what new stories can carry us forward, it, but we, we got to find something, even if it's provisional. Okay, um, chapters four and five are about um, emotional support and grieving. Um, emotional support, it's pretty obvious. I think we all know people through the pandemic who became a wreck because of conditions in the pandemic. Um, in fact, I, I suspect most people discovered emotional fragility that they didn't realize they had, including myself. Well, that's what happens during catastrophes, right? You get tried emotionally, and the more skills you have to deal with that, the better off you'll be. Um, in particular, grief, um, recognizing that grief is our friend, not our enemy, that it's not going to eat us alive. It's going to carry us to someplace new where we can honor the loss and, and not be crippled by the loss of whatever it is we're grieving. Um, and some people didn't even know that you can grieve other things besides humans dying. Hmm. You can grieve anything any loss. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it's like, so now what do we do? And some of that is, is spiritual. Some of it's relational, some of it's practical and the practical things are, are not, I don't spend a lot of time on them, but I do report a little of what other people are doing. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't too long. <laughs> In your book, you mentioned several different types of stories that people tell themselves, and, and you kind of give an alternative to different ways that people can t tell those stories, how they can shift that self-narrative. As you have worked with all the people that you've worked with, what would you say are the most prominent stories that need shifting in order for people to become more mentally and emotionally resilient? Mm, good question. I think they are the stories connected to we need modernity to live we need industrial consumer society to live we need continual growth and progress to live if you are tied to that story you will be miserable and there are many alternative stories to that one people are turning to traditional cultures to look for ways to live that have completely different values than industrial consumer society. Um, we, we can't be traditional. It's too late for that. But we can try to learn those values. Um, in particular, having enough and being content with what we have. It's one thing. Because, and so, so here's a new story for you. Industrial consumer society gave us unimaginable wealth and we thought it was normal. When reality, we were 
wealthier and more pampered than any other generation of human ever was before. If we lose that, we'll just be human. We, sh we shouldn't spend a lot of time feeling sorry for ourselves. That's actually um, something that I felt a lot while reading the book is kind of understanding this, this idea of, you mentioned at one point the ladder and how um, it's like everyone's trying to climb this ladder and prove their value. And so as we go up the ladder, uh, maybe it's getting an, a prestigious job or, um, you know, making a lot of money, or maybe it's a spiritual position or something like that. And we feel like where we are at on that ladder determines our value. And the whole idea is to get off of the ladder because that's where relationships can really thrive. Um, and it feels that way on an individual basis. And the way you just ex explained it seemed to be more on like a, a societal basis. We've climbed this ladder and we think that our value as a society or as humanity comes from the um, the enormous wealth and comfort that we've kind of been able to give ourselves. But the idea is that collapse is going to knock us several rungs um, down that ladder and it doesn't change our value. As people, as a society, obviously there's so much to grieve in the non-human world that's suffering along with um, with the consequences of our actions. But from a from a human standpoint, we should be able to be comfortable, to be happy, and realizing that we're no different as people um, in modern industrial society than than we would be without it. I guess. Yeah, our value does not come from our place in society. <clears throat> and uh, doesn't come from our lifespan. How do you think a person can actually make the shift in their mindset when, they, when their current story is so ingrained? Oh, good question. Don't do it alone. Find other people who are trying to make the same shift. So um, we, we probably each inhabit different spheres that have different expectations. And I've, I've always spent a certain amount of time with people who are homeless. So that recalibrates my meter. Um, people who are immigrants who came with nothing, that recalibrates my meter. The techie upper middle class community that I'm in uh, flies everywhere. And so it never occurred to me not to until I started hanging out with the deep adaptor adaptation forum people who think long and hard before they fly and some of them just don't. So because those are my people now, I think long and hard before I fly. And, and my husband gives me a really hard time about it. We have a really easy relationship in most ways. I was actually going to ask about that. I was thinking about that earlier. How, um, and you don't need to get too personal on this, but how, how does that work in your relationship? Is he on the same page as you or, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, he is uh, a lot more gentle soul than I. I. I wade into the deep of terror and go, okay, let's organize this. You know, who else runs grief groups? And and he's only willing to deal with so much. At the beginning, he kept saying, you're being too negative. You're being too negative. But now the news does it for me. So he stopped saying that. And we make decisions together. And he's no, he's not a materialistic person. So most of the decisions we make are easy. Um, he makes a good income for me to go do what I do. Lucky me. And uh, we're having a debate about flying places. Yeah. And that raises a question for me because, 
you know, with these podcasts that we've done, we find that so many of our listeners come from very different backgrounds. And, you know, somebody might, uh, like, listener A might have a very different living situation and lifestyle than listener B. And sometimes it can be challenging to, you know, share anything that's going to be applicable to everybody. And so curious to hear your thoughts, you know, if you've got uh, somebody who thinks I need to just stop uh, using any sort of, uh, you know, like if I need to totally detach from consumerism and using the energy that most people use, and I'm going to go live off grid and like that, I think that's a great approach. And that's one approach. Somebody else might want to take a totally different approach um, for you as you're working with people across all these different backgrounds, how do you uh, share principles that are applicable to everyone? Well, uh, maybe you might have some personal lifestyle preferences that you also wish they would adapt or adopt. Yeah, I, I'm lucky in that I haven't gotten sucked much into that one right way. There just just absolutely is not one right way. And especially if you you keep in mind, like nothing you do is going to save us. So the urgency just ramps way down. And most what people can do is very individual, very cultural, very local. What, What makes sense for you to do is very individual and cultural and local. So I would rather support people in figuring out what is theirs to do. And as I sit with what is mine to do, more and more I get invited to what is mine to be, like an an orientation of how would I live a little more like earth mattered? And no, that doesn't fix anything, but it's the kind of mindset that could have avoided this mess in the first place. Yeah. So then uh, I, I love your thoughts there. What is your response then to somebody who thinks you're right? There's nothing we can do to fix anything. So why don't I just fly planes everywhere I go? Why don't I? Just, why? Why should I even try? Or why should I care if it's all just going to lead to the same outcome anyways? We're all in the same storm. We're not all in the same boat. You know, boat building and boat repair. Are, are all good in a storm, boat bailing. So, so there is always a loving response. There's, there's always people you can help. There's always strengthening your own resilience so that you can be of service to the people you care about and hopefully a wider, wider circle too. To me, this, this fits into the hospice story. We're not dead yet right? Why don't we live? Why don't we love? Why don't we care for each other and enjoy life the best we can? And that might mean very practical disaster remediation, or that might mean making art, or that might be mean raising kids who know what nature is. It can mean a hundred different things, a thousand different things, but we're not dead yet. Let's live. <laughs> I'm I'm rethinking your last question. And, and when somebody says, what's the point to trying to do anything useful? They're stuck in an old story. And you could invite them, you could offer them a different story. 
you know, I see it. I see that, yeah, things are getting worse in a lot of concrete ways, and we can't we can't make a life the way we used to. We can't get self-respect the way we used to. But there's so much good left in the world and so many people worth serving. Why would I not keep doing that? Why would I not keep loving and working? So that's my nutshell story. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic response. And part of the reason I ask is because it's so difficult. You mentioned there's not just one right way to to approach things. And I completely agree with that. Um, I do think it can be challenging. We try not to be prescriptive with people and not mm-hmm. say you have to do this, this, this way or that way. And yet sometimes as you're trying to give uh, thoughts or advice, or we're doing research on how best to approach this declining societal situation, it does seem like there are some approaches that are better than others. And there are some approaches like somebody saying, oh, it's not even worth it. It's all going to pot anyways. I'm not going to try that. I do want to push back against. Um, And so trying to strike that balance between, you know, just giving general principles that will help anybody in any situation versus actually giving uh, more specific prescriptive steps to take can be a little bit challenging. But I think you've, uh, the way that you answer that question strikes that balance well. In the moment with a person in a small group, which I have the privilege of being a lot of the time, um, the thing to do is to listen. What makes it so discouraging? Why is what what is it that you've lost that you have no hope about? And when people come to terms with that, they often get unstuck. Yeah, it seems like a big piece of this whole question um, on one hand is how does a person adapt themselves mentally to be able to accept and grieve and be okay with not just the situation, but their their own handling of, of the situation. And I think that's part of where Kellen's question comes from, because part of me wants to be able to simply go through the grieving process and accept where we're at and what's going to happen. And then then there is the question, okay, but what do I do about it? And so you mentioned in the book, um, not having to put a personal responsibility on yourself to save the world. It's not our job to save the world. And, and that can do two things. That can either relieve a lot of pressure off of somebody's shoulders to be able to admit that and say, I don't have to feel this weight and this pressure. I don't have to tell myself the story that I need to be the savior. Um, but the other the other part of that is that people want a purpose, right? They want to feel um, fulfilled and a drive to do something. And I think what you've just mentioned, this, this idea that um, there are always going to be people to help. It doesn't mean you're saving the world. It means you're, you're helping a person, right? Um, you also talk a lot about the non-human world in the book and the fact that um, we can do things to appreciate, to love, to um, you know, while we still have it, to grieve for for things that aren't innately human, and that in and of itself is is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily consider. Um, you know, you we see at least on the uh, outwardly we see the selfishness, the grief of what I'm going to lose as we go through collapse, which is important uh, to deal with, but also there's this question of how do we appreciate love um, and show respect for the natural world? And so um, 
something like not flying, right, is a is a choice to make to say like this is how I'm going to lessen my impact and appreciate the non the non human aspect. And um, what other roles does the non human piece of this um, play in uh, in how people can react and grieve uh, going through collapse? I am really still learning that myself. I uh, I I I sit in a climate controlled room in front of a computer most of the day. So two things come to mind. One is just developing relationships with the non-human world. And I speak in the book about a $10 word, anthropomorphizing, treating the non-human world uh, or portions of it, treating my garden, a tree, the ocean, whatever, as if it were a person, having a relationship with it, having conversations with it. What does that look like? Looks different for different people. Go go, give it a try and see what happens. Some people have great imaginations and long conversations and other people just be. And that's that's how we know how to be in relationship is with people. So, and... But the interesting thing is when you start listening to the non-human world, you you get responses. It's not it's not one way, it's two way. And Robin Wall Kimmer has got some great quotes on that that I included in the book. The other thing about the non-human world is uh, we are constantly interacting with it. We eat. It's huge. How much do we think about? what we eat and where it comes from and that it is life given for us for our lives it's um it's it's a really simple practice that you know there's so much that we don't know in in a in a book study just last saturday somebody took the section on the honorable harvest which is a term that robin wall kimmerer popularized and gave some tips on what does an honorable harvest look like in a natural setting or a traditional setting. And somebody was there who was an art teacher. And she said, you know, when we get good supplies donated, the kids are there like vultures taking them all. And I'm going to teach them the honorable harvest so that they respect those gifts that were given to us and don't take the, the last and never take more than half in some other roles. It's like, hey, why didn't we teach our kids that? Great insights. Um, and I'll, I want to word this next question carefully, because I want to ask you a little bit about hope for the future. Uh, I know that it's we talk all the time about avoiding hopium and just that delusion that there's going to be some sort of magical solutions that'll get us out of this predicament. But uh, when we talk about collapse, uh, some people might see the future, you know, a decade or two from now as just a little bit worse than we're at now. Some people might feel like it's going to be a lot worse. And I'm just curious for you, as you think about how people should be processing what's going on and they should be coping with the challenges that they're going facing now and in the future, what gives you hope for the future? What I hope for, I, I don't have a sense of agency around government, <laughs> around climate. Uh, 
around resource distribution. What I hope for is that as many people as possible will choose cooperation instead of fighting, will choose peace instead of war, will choose generosity instead of greed when things get hard. It's that simple. I mean, there's nothing that happens that you can't make worse with a war. I would agree with that. <laughs> uh, so that kind of leads me to this next question, question, which is is a broad overarching question. But we have, you know, our listeners who are collapse aware, and they are dedicated to wanting to become more resilient across the board, like more physically resilient, emotionally, mentally resilient in all aspects. When someone says, I just want to be more resilient because I know we're in a challenging situation. Uh, do you have any general advice that comes uh, top of mind for you in how to build up resiliency? It's a really good question. And um, I'm just guessing and my, what might be useful, but but my best guess at this point is to figure out how to conduct your life in the absence of money. How how to how to um, how to barter, how to grow, and and you can't count on growing because crop failure. But heck, you know some years you'll 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 it'll work out. How to how to not be in debt? You know my my dirt farming ancestors knew not to get in debt because that was the beginning of the end. A, a lot of peasants know not to get in debt. If you can help it, if you're already there, I don't, you know, get creative. But but figure, figuring out how to do more with less, how how to how to unplug from the industrial consumer machine monetarily and relationally. Even like I'm I'm in a very dense suburb. I'm I'm not I'm not going to the boondocks. I'm I'm going down with my with my high tech city or or not who knows i mean because collapse will be very unequally distributed and very distributed in time as well yeah you mentioned in the book the uh the collapse now and avoid the rush um conversation and i think that's that's aptly summarized in in what you just explained this idea of learn more to do or learn to do more with less now so that as you're forced to do more with less uh later you're you're more prepared for that. I think I just want to um I want to thank Daniel Kim because Daniel we have interviewed Daniel on the podcast before and I know Terry you know Daniel well you actually talk about him in your book as well and he he introduced us to you. So I wanted to shout out Daniel again and tell anyone that's listening to go listen to his podcast because he just has some fascinating um, some fascinating insights. And then Terry I also wanted to just invite you to let people know um, where they can find your book. Um, if you have a preferred method for them to to purchase or read that um, and where they can learn more about you as well. Okay, if you go to the website, open door communication, no s at the end, dot org slash i e y e as in eye of the storm, then you will there'll be a, a get the book link, which will tell you all your options. And there is a free option. Michael Dowd, uh, who uh, we lost in October, 
yeah. uh, who created the postdoom.com website and recorded a, and curated a lot of stuff. He recorded the book and that that record is on SoundCloud for free. I'll send you guys the link so you can post it. Um, I want people to have this book. One of the options on the website is PDF. And the PDF is on a donation basis. And if your budget doesn't support a donation or you don't have the right uh, tools, just get the PDF anyway. Hey, that's amazing. Uh, it's not often that you hear people write an entire book and then offer it for free. So um, those those listening who can who have access and are willing to donate or purchase the book, I'm sure that Terry would love and appreciate that. But it sounds like the most important thing to Terry is that people are getting the information and the help and feeling the the um, the love that you're offering. So I think that's that's amazing. Thank you for that. Um, we will make sure to link in the episode description where people can find the book and find out more about you. Um, anything else here to add, to add, Terry, that you'd like the people to know before we say goodbye? Well, I'd like to thank you for doing this podcast because this is your way of showing up and being of service. Um, don't forget to have fun. Like, don't let don't don't let prepping or or worrying or or predicting take up all your energy. You don't you don't have to live high to live well. Great words to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Terry. Hopefully we'll be speaking with you again another time. Thank you. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.